Welcome to this week's edition of Book Tour. This is John Grisham. We are in my hometown of Oxford, Mississippi, at my home bookstore, Square Books, still the greatest store in the world, joined by Richard Howorth, the owner and founder of Square Books, and the novelist uh, Ace Atkins and Tom Franklin. We'd like to thank our presenting sponsor, Audible, for being part of this special series. Hi, I'm John Grisham, and you're listening to Book Tour. Today, I'm back home in Oxford, Mississippi, where I went to law school and got married, and I'm sitting in my favorite bookstore on the square, Square Books. My guests today are Tom Franklin and Ace Atkins. Square Books was founded a long time ago by Richard and Lisa Howorth, friends of mine, and here's Richard. Uh, I'm Richard Howorth. I'm with Square Books, and... We have uh, three terrific guests today, in addition to John Grisham, uh, Tom Franklin, and Ace Atkins are here. If y'all want to come out, are y'all listening behind the curtain? Will you you tell them to come on? Just open the curtain and tell them to come on. It's quite dramatic, isn't it? So... Go ahead. It's your store. You get to go first. uh, But you're kind of the boss of this event, so if you want to go first, you can, but... As you know, I'm on a book tour uh, for the first time in a long time, and um, I was in uh, Asheville, North Carolina at the bookstore called Malaprops, which is a great place for my first time there, with Ron Rash, who's from the area, and uh, Ron kept referring to Malaprops as his home store. I never thought about that, but writers have to have home stores, you know? Well, I I always consider Square Books to be my home store, even though we moved (laughs) on. We moved away a long time ago. Um, I actually went to the very first Square Books in July of 1985. I was a lawyer. I was 30 years old, and I was trying a big case, the biggest case of my career, in federal court here, and there there was a question about federal evidence, and I asked somebody if there's a bookstore in town, and they said, yeah, there's one uh, next door to Nielsen's upstairs. So I ran up there during a recess, and I found the book I needed. It was something about federal evidence. And took it back to the, uh, I'm not sure I met you or who was working that day, but it was a small bookstore. I didn't have time to... I was the only person who worked there. <laughs> well, I hope you were polite to me. Um, and I was in and out. I didn't have time to browse or whatever. And then the bookstore moved to where it is now. And um, for years, I would sneak off on a Friday afternoon with a lawyer buddy of mine. We would tell our wives we had depositions in Oxford. And we, we would uh, or we had to check a land title in Lafayette County, and we'd take off for the afternoon, drive to Square Books, uh, to go to a book signing. We went to several of Barry's, uh, Larry's. Uh, Willie was around, but he wasn't writing much then. Uh, it was just sort of a dream, and I was writing. I was writing my first novel, and I kept thinking this would be a lot of fun to be able to write full time and hang around bookstores and sign autographs and things like that. In 1989, my first book came out, a Time to Kill. And um, I was broke in 1989, but I had a lot more money than my publisher. And there was no money to do PR or things like that. So I was kind of on my own. And I I convinced Richard to hold a signing for me. We had a very nice signing at Square Books, uh, my first bookstore signing with A Time to Kill. When The Firm came out um, a few months later, you could still find copies of A Time to Kill for sale in bookstores around here. Uh, for 1895, um, the book flopped. I mean, it didn't sell anywhere. 
except for Oxford and Memphis and Jackson, a few other areas. But they, they, they never went back for more books, never went to paperback, and never went to the foreign market. So the book was kind of dead until the firm came out. When the firm came out in March of 91, um, things changed a lot. And we started doing signings that would last um, for a long time. 14 hours. 14 hours. And we realized that uh, – I, I didn't realize how much pressure it put on the bookstore because you had to control the crowd. It was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> My arm was about to fall off, you know. And, and we, we, we realized that some of you great people who are fans would wait in line for a long time to, uh, to get a book signed. And if you're going to wait for five or six hours, that means I've got to work for about 10 or so. And so we – we stopped doing that. It was a nice problem to have, flatter to have it, but I just got, I got tired of working like that. And we cut the crowd back, and then we, we stopped, I stopped doing them all together about, about 10 years ago. That's the way you remember it? Uh, that, that's sort of the way I remember it, yeah. <laughs> I still sign 2,000 books a year for Richard, and, and those of you who collect the first edition still, still get those. That's true. Uh, it was, uh, that first book, it was very organic uh the the beginning was in the same way it, it often is with writers and their first books i'm i'm proud to say that we had book signings for the first books of both of these two writers uh ace's crossroad blues and tom's uh, book of stories the poachers and we did we did ten thousand actually yeah we did ten thousand and it's a joke people it's and, good. and, and we sold twelve thousand of, of poachers but uh, one of the things John asked me about doing, he wanted, he asked if we, he had this book coming out and he wanted to do a book signing. And I said, sure. And, uh, and he said, and I need you to sell a lot of books. And I said, well, I said, well, we're, you know, that's, that's hard to do. And, and for one thing, we haven't read, nobody in my stores read the book. And, it, you know, we have to develop some real enthusiasm for the book. And then shortly after that, John returned to Oxford with a box that had in it uh, a, an unbound copy of the galleys of A Time to Kill. And I thought, what did I, what did I encourage this guy for, you know? And I said, I've got this big, you know, this is about this big. So I took it home that night and started reading it. And at two o'clock in the morning, I said, "This guy's got something." And so the next time we talked, we talked about promoting, uh, promoting the book. And I, at that time, I used to send out these cards. I would handwrite uh, on the publisher's art of the jacket art of the book on a postcard. Sometimes they would send these postcards, and then I have my printer go print off, run off copies as, and then I would handwrite addr the addresses to about you know two hundred customers. It looked like it was a personal message for me. It it was, but it wasn't in, wasn't completely personal. <laughs> and, and John wanted me to do that, and so uh, he he said, uh, and and I'll I'll pay for the cards. And I said, okay, I'll pay for the postage, and that's and that's how he did it. So I brought I saved a couple of those cards, and so there's the there's the card, and here's a message. It's kind of long. You mind this? No, okay. This, if y'all do a reading, this will be my reading. Okay. Uh, not long ago, John Grisham, a man I had only just met, sent me the unbound galleys of a novel he had written to be published by a new publisher I wasn't certain I'd heard of. Uh, oh, no, I thought, here comes some guy who thinks he's going to be the next Mississippi writer. Uh, <laughs> As, as, I as I read the opening pages, I was disappointed 
by a feeling that this novel might be similar and inferior to Paris Trout, a novel which had just won the National Book Award. I could not have been more wrong. A Time to Kill is a fabulous first novel, better, I think, than Paris Trout. Uh, June 27, Tuesday at 4.30, John Grisham, the next Mississippi writer, will be here at Square Books for a signing. Hope to see you. Your friend, Richard. There's a quote uh, on the front. It's a quotation. A powerful courtroom drama by Willie Morris. So Willie was living here, and I was stalking him. And I finally, you know, I can't believe I did this, but I did it, okay? And so uh, I finally, um, we had dinner with him one night with some mutual friends. And about halfway through dinner, Willie said, uh, what you writing, boy? And I said, you know, I'm writing this legal thing. He said, look, I'm going to tell you what Sherwood Anderson told William Faulkner in 1925 in New Orleans. I'll blurb your damn book if I don't have to read it. <laughs> I said, fair enough. And then Willie said, I'll go one step further. You write the blurb and I'll sign it. <laughs> so I wrote uh, a powerful courtroom drama. And said, <laughs> And Willie never saw it. I never showed it to him. It went to the printer like that, you know. And so, of course, with that Willie, t- typical Willie, uh, took full credit for all my success for years to come. <laughs> it's true. It's true. All right, enough of that old stuff. Uh, you guys, are, are you still touring? You guys going to tour? I'm back on tour on the 20th of July. July, uh, Ace's, I believe, seventh novel in the Quinn Colson series is coming out the following. So. You're writing what? two two books a year, you know that? That's it. Yes, yeah. sir. Drinking I was, was going to say, the, th- the thing I like best about Ace as a writer is he writes two books a year, <laughs> every year. That's the thing I hate most about Ace <laughs> as a writer, that he writes two books per year. John does it only occasionally. I've been doing two books a year for the last, um, well, I started the kids series. Yeah. I started Theo Boone. Those are short books, and I can write them in the fall. They take a couple of three months to write. And, you know, if I'm not writing something, I'm, I'm bored, so I've got to write. And I like the kids' series. Last fall, I did not have a, um, I didn't have a story for Theo, and I had the story for Camino Island. And so I got, and I enjoyed writing the book. In fact, I've never had so much fun. And so I knocked it out last fall and dropped it on my publisher um, in January and made their year. Um, when you tour, how extensive is it? I do uh, 12 cities each time, and um, I just got back from another tour in May and then uh, go back out and, uh, you know, had to do a lot of wash and clean the underwear and then get back out on the, on the road. Tom, That's a tough thing. Tom, your touring schedule. Well, you've got to actually write a book to tour, so I'm <laughs> not currently touring. I'm trying to finish a novel these days. So. We don't look down on you, Tom, because you don't produce very much, but, you know, it's just... <laughs> Ace and I work faster, okay? We write faster. But do you do the national tour when you when you publish? Yes, I do. Yeah, thirty five yeah. cities and no, 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 something probably twenty maybe. Okay. Yeah. Do you enjoy touring? The only time I I enjoyed touring for poachers, I enjoyed coming here. I had about probably fifteen people, which was not bad. Uh, but for a book that I co wrote with my wife, then I enjoyed touring because she came with me. Okay, now that you brought that up, <laughs> why would you ever consider writing a book with your wife? Well, she's a very good writer. Well, I know that, but I mean, and, and, and as it turned out, she did all the work. It worked out really well. What well, was for the me. process? Was it alternating chapters, or it was going to be? And she finished all of her chapters, and I had none of mine written. <laughs> so we then co-wrote my chapters. 
and it worked. I think so. Would you try that, Ace? Uh, sure. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. My wife's not here, but yeah, absolutely. You know. So Renee and I were driving two years ago to our annual summer road trip uh, to the beach in Florida, and we throw the dog in the back seat, load up the SUV with stuff. She gets, fixes some good food. And we take off for eleven hours, and we listen to podcasts. And so I do know what they are, and books on tape, and things like. And great conversation. We take naps and all. It's our summer road trip. And there was a story on NPR about uh, some stolen books or whatever, rare books, and we forget what it is. So we, we got this idea to write a novel uh, around uh, rare books, stolen books, bookstores, really cool booksellers, you know. Um, we, didn't, we didn't model after anybody we know. Right. Uh, it's all fiction. And uh, so as we, as we got further into the trip, the idea was I would write the chapters dealing with the male lead, and we would alternate to the female lead, and Renee would write those chapters back and forth, back and forth, and it sounded great until we got to the beach. And um, by then, I had the story, we had the story kind of mapped out, but she was not going to write a single word with me, so she, that, that did not work out. So I don't know how you did it. It worked? Well, yeah, it, it did work, and you know, it started out with us writing separately, or trying to write separately, but when we wrote my chapters together, we wrote in Beth Ann's office, and that worked really well. Because writing, as you know, is so lonely. But then I was in the room with another person, and it, it, that loneliness, which is to me the hardest part, is why you turn to drink, because you're so lonely. <laughs> that, that, that was not that, the case That's here. what writers, that's one excuse writers use to, uh, to drink. As to, it's they're, mine, yeah. They're <laughs> the book that uh, Tom and Beth Ann did together is called uh, A Tilted World, and the tilted world. The tilted world. And it's uh, and it's awfully good. It's available in paperback at bookstores very near you. <laughs> so it's about the Great Flood of 1927. Yes, it so is. So give us the plot in the the synopsis of it real quick. Uh, quickly, um, two characters: a a, a male uh, revenue agent um, and a female bootlegger. Um, the the male revenue agent is sent to fictional Hobnob, Mississippi. Uh, to help to, to look for two other revenue agents who had gone missing. And um, on the way there, they find a baby and take it to this town and find a, a, a mother for it. The mother they find is Dixie Clay Holliver, the other main character. Uh, this is the character Beth Ann wrote uh, so beautifully. Um, she has lost a, a son a couple of years earlier and so takes this baby, falls in love with the baby, and um, uh, the flood happens and, you know, and things ensue. And... Um, yeah. <laughs> you like small towns. Oh, I love small towns. Your first few novels after Poachers uh, were about, they were based on supposedly real stories that you stole, because that's what we do as writers. We steal stories, and you fictionalize them, and they're dark and violent. And why do you like that darkness and violence so much? I think I th you're honestly, next, Ace. You're next. Honestly, I, th I think because at heart I'm a coward and I'm always afraid, and and I like people who are, are, are not afraid of violence and blood who sort of take charge of their world. You know, I'm just I, I really do admire people who have presence of mind in those kinds of situations. So, Ace, you've been called the this is a quote now, not from me, but the greatest crime writer working in America these days. Actually, I, I did write that. <laughs> I didn't know who wrote it. I just Willie, saw it. Willie Morris said that. Yeah. 
All right, what's your, what's your attraction to, to crime writing, to, to, to real crime? Well, I used to be a, a newspaper reporter for, for several years, and um, I enjoyed that. I enjoyed the, the stories that I was uh, getting involved in. I enjoyed going to the courthouse. I enjoyed going to the police station. And I really felt like those crime stories told the best tales about humanity and society and what was going on in your community. And I never felt as close to a community than when I was a crime writer. So I really like to mine those stories. I feel like we can tell a lot about what's going on in the world today just by looking at the police blotter. Okay, talk about your first one. You were in Tampa, and it was a cold case based on a murder in 1950. How'd you find out about it, and did you, did you solve the crime? Well, I start, actually, I started off, I was writing these books that were um, set back in the South. I'm originally from Alabama, and I started writing books set in, in Mississippi and the Delta, and I was attracted to writing about blues music and that kind of thing, and, and uh, you know, really kind of classic crime stories. But what I really had ignored is what was in my own backyard, which was this incredible cold case story that had happened in the 1950s. And it was like something out of LA Confidential. It was about dirty cops and it involved Fidel Castro as a young man, it involved the Cuban revolution. And so a lot of the old timers had told me about this, old cops, old reporters. And uh, the best story that I knew was right in front of my face. And finally it took me moving to Mississippi to write about Tampa. But when you were writing as a reporter, how many, it was a series of how many stories? I did. It was a, an eight-part series called Tampa, uh, Tampa Confidential. And uh, yeah, I, I got to touch base with all these people. Now they're all gone. Um, people that were the uh, the cops that were involved and the reporters that were involved and some of the friends of the, the murder victim and uh, really got to, to see what that world was like in the 1950s. I, it was almost like archaeology in some way. And you were nominated for a Pulitzer. I was. And uh, did you solve the crime? I did not. So that's why I didn't win the Pulitzer. <laughs> But I came close. I had a pretty good working uh, uh, idea of what had, what had happened. So how close does your novel track the real story? It's, it's pretty close. It's a little bit of an offshoot from that particular story. It actually involved another case that happened from a year later. But I just I fell in love with that world. I fell in love with uh, Tampa, the 1950s, and what was going on with the little roadside motels. And I know you mentioned in, in uh, Camino Island, you talk about John D. McDonald. And I love those novels of John D. McDonald in 1950s, 1960s Florida. And uh, I went to Cuba to kind of kind of reconnect some of these dots. And I just uh, fell in love with, uh, with that, that whole base of, of, of storytelling. And Tom, your first novel after Poachers was, Poachers was a collection of stories, uh, Breach, right? Hell at the Breach. Hell to, that, that was the name of a gang, right? Right. So t- based on, again, supposedly a true story. So what's yeah. the true story? The true story is this happened in Clark County, Alabama, about 12 miles from where I grew up. Uh, a group of very, very poor sharecroppers all white, um, had a politician they were behind. And the guy he was running against was a doctor from uh, um, Coffeyville, Alabama. And they had a debate, a public debate, and arguably the country guy won. Afterward, he had a headache and and complained to his opponent, who was a doctor, who gave him some medicine, and he died on his way home. So the country folks thought, well, they've killed our one good chance. So they formed a gang called Hell at the Breach, and they wore white hoods. It wasn't, again, it wasn't racially based. It was class based, and they did terrible things in Clark County. They uh, shot a store owner on Christmas Day, uh, and uh, eventually the violence became so bad that the uh, governor got involved, and the whole, it became, it's known as the Mitchum War in Clark <laughs> County, and uh, the whole, uh, a, a lot of people got together from surrounding towns and went into Mitcham Beat, this area where these guys lived, 
and just massacred them. They killed, you know, guilty people and innocent people. They shot one guy, named, a guy called Kirk James, so many times they tied him between two trees. They shot him so many times he had six holes in a plug of tobacco in his pocket. And he had holes in the bottoms of his feet. It's, it's one of the funniest stories I have ever read in my life. <laughs> you love this Laugh, stuff, don't I you? Cried, I cried. Well, you know, I, I made a giant mistake on it, too. Uh, it opens up with a, a kid drowning six puppies which is a terrible way to start a book. I remember you doing the reading here. Yeah. 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 People were leaving. (laughs) My publicist called and said, don't read that anymore. We want to sell some books. Tom, do you want to sell books? Okay. I I do. Let's talk talk later, okay? Okay. (laughs) I can't start off drowning seven puppies, okay? All right, the next book was Smonk, and it was about a a murderer, rapist who terrorized a, was it Texas City, Alabama? Old Texas, Alabama. Old Texas, Alabama. It's a comedy. It's a comedy. For, for you, it's a comedy. You think it's funny, right? I, I, unfortunately, I do. <laughs> How did Smonk do? Um, yeah, it did terribly. It, but just, it, it tanked. It went right down. Did now. both of those uh, novels track the, the real-life events? Or would you, you took great liberty with it? No, a Smonk is absolutely entirely made up. It's, it, in places, okay. almost science fiction. It's, it, it, just, it, it has no boundaries. Hell at the Breach is absolute realism, uh, uh, mostly realism, I suppose. <coughs> And, and I tried to stay as close to the events as I could for a while. <coughs> but um, this is kind of a, this for me was a writing epiphany. I was writing that book and I couldn't finish it. I was living in the house that uh, John Grisham so generously provided my wife and uh, infant daughter and me. I was a John Grisham writer in residence in 2001. And uh, that house has such great mojo sitting in, up in that attic room where I presume you had worked and Mark Richard had worked. And, T.R. Pearson had worked. It was a terrific place to be. And up there, I finally got this novel that I had not been able to write for a few years going. Um, I forgot what I was talking about, but... The, the parties at the Grisham house. That's what you're talking about. Here's Great a question part. for both of you. I mean, you, you both write a lot of crime, uh, or you create a lot of crime. Do you think that the South is more violent than other parts of the country? I, I don't think it's... Um, more violent. I also write books that are set in Boston, and Boston is a very gritty, violent world too. Um, Southerners just have a weirder way of doing things, and uh, they have a stranger way of of uh, pulling off crimes. And uh, I just I, I find so much of what I write about just reading the newspaper and see what's going on, and seeing about uh, you know the, the crazy thefts and the you know there was something that happened in Water Valley, Mississippi, which is really close to us. Uh, involving a shootout on an ATV last week. And I mean, that's just gold. I mean, I filed that stuff away. I mean, you got a shootout on an ATV. I was going to use that story, okay? <laughs> but I just love that. But there, there's a specific type of criminal to the South uh, that I find very intriguing and I find fascinating. And, uh, you know, it's, it's close to home. I, 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 love, I love writing about it. I, I think that you have a lot more room to hide bodies in the South because it's so rural. <laughs> Flannery O'Connor's quote was, when people ask me why Southern writers have such a penchant for writing about freaks, I say it's because we're still able to recognize one. <laughs> and nobody, nobody did it better, you know, writing about them. Uh, yeah, I would argue that the South is more violent because of its history. It's, it's tortured history, the, the, the um, centuries of injustice that uh, went unnoticed, unpunished, whatever. You know, it's, it's a very violent and has been a very violent uh, culture, um, probably more so than most 
certainly New England, uh, outside the big cities, uh, the Midwest. Um, I'm not sure about the Wild West, but uh, I've always been intrigued by the violence that we that we see or we've seen in the South. I mean, the first chapter of A Time to Kill is something that's so violent. I won't even I won't even read it anymore. I mean, I, I never have gone back to read it. But it's when the, when the movie came out six or seven years after the book. Uh, they, you know, they showed it to us in a private screening, and the movie's very faithful to the book. But um, Ray almost got up and took the kids out. Our kids were younger because it's just, it's just awful. Mm. You know, when I wrote that, I didn't have a daughter, mm. and I'm not sure I could do that now. Um, tell us about your series, the Colson series. Where'd that come from? I, that came from uh, being back in the South, and I'm I'm originally from Alabama. Um, Came to Mississippi. We were talking about that earlier about being here in Oxford and how that that this town brought me here. It just pulls you in, and um, I think I just I wanted to write something about modern Southern characters, and I wanted to write about what was going on in the world. And there just there's so many interesting people. I mean, I could get a dozen novels this afternoon by going down to Walmart and just walking down and up and down the, you know, it just overhearing and eavesdrop. I love to eavesdrop on people. A dozen them? Oh, I could do a, oh my gosh, absolutely. I could do an entire new series just set out there. And um, I have buddies of mine that are in in law enforcement and I get to go ride with them from time to time down in Calhoun County and and, uh, also uh, here in in, uh, Lafayette. But I just... I really want to write something very modern. And when I started writing this series, it was also at a time when a lot of soldiers were returning home from the war and uh, both men and women. And I got to see some of these people that I were buddies of mine and how they were reacclimating themselves to the world. And that was part of a big part of the series is about a guy who's been away for 10, 12 years and coming back to a small town in Mississippi and how he's trying to not only, um, you know, make sense of things, but also write things as well. And very inspired by, you know, movies like Walking Tall and White Lightning. And uh, I always tell people I'm inspired by two two major Southern heroes, which is William Faulkner and Burt Reynolds. <laughs> so, Tom, you're about to take a sabbatical. What, yes, what, I am. What does that mean? It means I have a year away from teaching. Well, I, I, I love teaching uh, at Ole Miss. It's the best job I could have ever had. And the students are so good. Sam McAlilly, who works at the bookstore, is one of my great undergraduates here. Uh, so it, it's, it's a wonderful job. But, you know, they demand a lot, and I give them a lot. So, it, you know, the university is very generous to, to give us this time off to charge back up and hopefully get a lot of good work done. So what's the next, next book about? The next book is kind of a horror novel. Why am I not surprised? I mean, uh... <laughs> Is it, so where's it set? Small town, Alabama? It's set in, in a fictional small town in Alabama called Buford. Okay. And? I'm afraid to talk about it. Good. I, I'm like you. I don't like to talk about what I'm writing. I, I, I just don't like to do that. People, you hear writers do it all the time, uh, talk about what they're doing, or I, I get really irritated when I hear somebody say, yeah, I'm thinking about writing a novel. Well, big deal, okay? You know, there's, there's nothing really to brag about until you've written the novel and you've got a contract and it's going to be published and the book's printed and it's about to come to the, the bookstores. At that point, you've got a lot to be proud about, you know? But don't, don't talk it to death. I know writers who just talk their stuff to death. So good. Don't talk about your novel. How about you, Ace? What's coming up next? No, you know, let's talk about it. What's your, uh, <laughs> this is like group therapy. I'm going to have to... <laughs> Lay down on a couch. Uh, uh, 
we were talking earlier about alienating the audience. So hopefully we'll not uh, alienate too much, but uh, I'm writing about a uh, story about a team of bank robbers that have come to uh, Mississippi in the mid South and, and around Memphis and down in the North, North Mississippi. And uh, they're hitting banks all across um, the community down here. And they're dressed up as Donald Trump. And so that's the, that's the story is the Trump bandits. And so uh, you can only guess, I can't say it on this uh, family friendly podcast, but they shoot up the ceiling and they say, anyone moves and I'll grab them by the, and I can't tell them what, tell them what they could, I'm going to say in there. This thing is not PG-13 rated. I'm not, it's a podcast. No, it's not. It's a, it's a, I'm not sure if we rate podcasts. Okay, I, I, right. I, I, found, I heard yesterday they actually review podcasts to see if we're any good. So, you know, I don't know. But that's okay. We're in a family-friendly bookstore. So, <laughs> Richard and I have had you this can, discussion before. That's it. why I'm very careful to say anything. Support for Book Tour with John Grisham comes from Audible. F. Scott Fitzgerald enrolled in Princeton in the fall of 1913. At the age of 16, he was dreaming of writing the great American novel and had indeed begun working on an early version of This Side of Paradise. He dropped out four years later to join the army and go to war, but it ended before he was deployed. His classic, The Great Gatsby, was published in 1925 but did not become popular until after his death. He struggled financially throughout his career, and by 1940 was working in Hollywood, cranking out bad screenplays, failing physically and creatively. On December 21st, he died of a heart attack, brought on by years of severe alcoholism. In 1950, Scotty, his daughter and only child, gave his original manuscripts, notes, and letters, his papers, to the Firestone Library at Princeton. His five novels were handwritten on inexpensive paper that did not age well. The library quickly realized that it would be unwise to allow researchers to physically handle them. High-quality copies were made, and the originals were locked away in a secured basement vault where the air, light, and temperature were carefully controlled. Over the years, they had been removed only a handful of times. If that story from John Grisham's Camino Island made you feel something, hear what an entire Audible book can do. Get a free audiobook with a 30-day trial by visiting www.audible.com Grisham. That's audible.com Grisham. We've got a few minutes uh, to go. Uh, any questions from the floor? Yes, sir. Is Camino Island based on uh, any real place in Florida? Uh, yeah, yeah. I took square books and put it on Main Street in this fictional town. And uh, the bookstore there uh, bears no resemblance to square books. Um, there's no, if there's a literary gang down there, I don't know. I, I hadn't been invited to join. <laughs> uh, I, I don't know who they are. Uh, That's all fictional. Um, and the, the, the setting is fairly accurate, but the story is pure fiction. Can, can I ask you about that? About one, one of the things I really uh, found hilarious about the book was the uh, the, the literary community. I, li- I really like those people. I like the the characters in it, and I like to. Did those people come from people that you know? What was the? Wh- how did that come during the process of the writing? Because it's a it's a thriller, but it, I think at some point it becomes a little bit of a satire of the book industry too. And it's a there's some really funny funny yeah. passages in it. No, it's they're all fiction. I said, okay, if you if you're going to put together a literary gang in a you know in a beachside resort town in Florida where you know you probably have writers who like John D. McDonald lived down the road on a boat at at, uh, it, it close to Fort Lauderdale. You know, h- how would you construct that, that, that gang of people who hang out around the bookstore and are, you know, the leader sort of the bookseller, uh, but some real characters and had to work on those sketches for a while. 
and the other character, the the Lothario of the book, uh, the bookstore owner that uh, uh, has beds a lot of the the women who come to town. They're the female writers. Where did where did this uh, character come from? Your creative imagination. Well, for for those of you who who haven't read the book. Um, the bookstore owner is called Bay Books, and the bookstore owner is a guy, a 43-year-old guy named um, Bruce Cable. I thought it was I'm, Richard Snowworth. 66. <laughs> and he, uh, he, he dresses sharp. He's a handsome guy. He's he, got lots of hair. He's got lots of hair. <laughs> he's got, he has lots of hair. He loves ladies, and they love him. And uh, he has sort of an open marriage, and so he, he does real well when the young female writers come through on tour. And, um, you know, he's just, he, he's active, he, but he, he, uh, he also reads four books a week. He works seven days a week. He's a great bookseller, and it's totally fictional. And when I, and <laughs> it's not based on anybody. Well, I, you know, thank I, you. I, thank you. <laughs> when, I, when I wrote the book, um, I realized a long time ago, I mean, I've sold a lot of books. I know nothing about the retail side of the book business. I mean, that's a whole different animal. And so I sent the manuscript to Richard. Uh, early on, and I said, please take a look. I already asked him a bunch of questions uh, by email, and he helped out uh, every time I asked him. And he read the book and was very encouraging, but found a lot of ways to improve it uh, along the way. That, that is such a lie. <laughs> I've got the emails. I, I, got, the, I got proof. I, I had one. It, all, all, the, all my responses had, you know, it was about how many square feet and how many dollars the, <laughs> sales volume and whether he could have that many hardcovers or paperbacks. It was, and, that was and, a, and total titles, I, total titles, total titles. All I said, I had one suggestion, which you did not That's use. True. That's true. That's <laughs> true. No, it's a great idea. And, and when you hear it, you're going to love it. The truth is I didn't have time to you go can, back. You can put it in the sequel. <laughs> <laughs> well, tell them what it is. Those of you who know Square Books and Off Square Books more specifically remember Mama Cita. Oh. I thought the bookstore the, the, would get a little more life if it had a bookstore cat. A cat, yeah. Now, I have to say this is Lisa's idea. Yeah. She's the one that told me, give it a bookstore cat. Yeah. So, yeah. How, how did the bookstore owner get the rock hard abs? What was that? The, was that Richard's idea? No, I just. Uh, Enough of Richard. Let's just, let's just stop beating up Richard, okay? It's all fiction. It's all fiction. Fictional character. Yes, ma'am. The question is, uh, since Ace now does the Robert Parker Spencer series, plus you've got a, the Colson series, plus you've got your standalone books, or do you still have time to do the Spencer series? You damn right. <laughs> you know, I'm going to keep on keep on writing those books, and and I tell people up in Boston, they're always uh, kind of surprised. They said, "You know, like I read around the they're very bo- for those of you who don't know the Spencer books are very Boston centric. They're all you know very Massachusetts, New England, and people are always surprised at book signings. They say, "How could a guy like you? I read on the back of the book, you you live in Oxford, Mississippi, and you're writing Boston. How do you do that?" And they always say that kind of edgy. And I said, "Look, I said, don't worry about it. I said I'm not really from Oxford, Mississippi. I only moved here, you know." 15 years ago, I said, I'm originally from Alabama. <laughs> but you don't have much of a Southern accent. That kind of, I've, I've lived many different places. Yeah. It kind of rounds out. Tom's got yep. a, a, more of an Alabama accent. Uh, I've been told that mine has uh, softened since I'm, I moved to Virginia 23 years ago. It's not, it's not intentional. That just sort of happens. But the first time I talked to you, I realized you know, most of the accent's gone. Whatever that's worth. Next, next question. Yes, ma'am. The question is, have I ever finished a book and been very uh, pleased and happy that I was done with it? 
Tom, I know how you feel. <laughs> you want to answer that? Um, well, I'm always thrilled to have finished a book. You know, I, I don't enjoy writing the books. <laughs> I, that's not. That's not true. I, that's well, not true. I, I enjoy. I enjoy having written. Is what I say. It's fun, it's fun to do stuff like this. No, it, it is true. Writing books when it's going well is is the best thing. It's quite fun, and to finish one is an extraordinary feeling. Um, well, since it happens so rarely, um, <laughs> now come on, that's not a cheap shot. We we agreed back in the back. We sacrifice everything for humor. Okay, so cheap shots are okay. Do you have a ritual when you finish a book? What do you do? I don't have a ritual. You know, uh, now that you ask, I wish I did. Um, when we finished The Tilted World, Richard Ford gave Beth Enemy a bottle of Dom Perignon. There you go. And we drank it on uh, Faulkner's grave. That's pretty cool. That, that was good, yeah. 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 My last night in law school was on Faulkner's grave. <laughs> a buddy and I, a Bear, Barry Sounds and I went to Faulkner's grave for some reason. And we both had a bottle of very uh, cheap wine. And we, we, we weren't Faulkner fans. You know, we just, I guess it was the most famous place in town. And funny, funny you did that. Do you have a ritual? Uh, Richard Ford actually gives me a back rub uh, afterwards. And that's how it. <laughs> yes, ma'am. I'm thrilled to finish every book. Uh, I, I, the writing, the last month or so is... Um, I always have a deadline to finish a book. I guess some writers don't, but I, uh, I know Ace does. To, to write two books a year, you got to be very disciplined and have the deadline. And so the last month or so before deadline is, you know, it's a lot of hours, but it's not a, a hard life. Uh, it's very nice to be done with it. And then once, once I finish the first draft, it goes through copy editing, and you know, that takes another six weeks. So another three or four drafts. So by the time you're done, you're really tired of them. And I've never gone back and read any of my stuff. I don't want to. I had to read, um, I had to read uh, Ford County, the short stories, for the audio tape, which I will never do again because it was just <laughs> awful to sit in a sound studio for four days in a row reading stuff. You, 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 learn, you, you hate it more and more with each page. Um, <laughs> yes, sir. The question is, uh, in the Camino Island, there's a discussion, these writers over dinner, with a lot of wine flowing, they have their discussion that writers always have when you have literary artists at the same table with popular writers. And the popular writers long for critical acclaim, and the uh, literary stars uh, long for bigger royalty checks, okay? So nobody's ever really happy, and that discussion gets played out. And so at this point, I'm going to punt and ask you two guys to analyze it for us. Go first. <laughs> sure, absolutely. No, I think there. You talk about those 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 rare writers who who get to enjoy both. I mean, I think you mentioned a few of them uh, in your book. You had these little name drops, and and one of my favorite, two of my favorite writers, but one of my all time favorite writers, James Lee Burke. Uh, I don't think I'm giving too much away. Is a very important manuscript that, or a very valuable first edition book that's in there. And I think he's one of those writers that is able to enjoy uh, critical success and financial success at the same time. Really engaging books, but just wonderful. And then also Cormac McCarthy, one of your one of your favorites. And so anyway, we we uh, I think that there are those rare individuals that can that can do both. I think Michael Shaban uh, does both. You know, and he gets in there and mixes up with the genre. I think in, in a really interesting way. John Irving uh, is is. Regarded by the critics well and, and sells very well. Uh, Donna Tart uh, is adored by the critics and sells very. You know, there there are a handful of writers who can do that. Uh, you know, if you're asking what the distinction is, it's it's not always clear. It's just not always a 
clear black and white of what's literary and what's popular. Question? Yes, sir. My inspiration for Calico Joe. Uh, I love baseball, and I always wanted to write a baseball novel, but I didn't have a story. And I waited and waited and waited, and I wrote two football novels while I was waiting because uh, I had good stories. And with me, um, you know, I catch myself st- saying all the time, yeah, I got a story. No, I don't have a story. You know, it's, it's, it all goes back to story and plot. And I, if, when, when I have a story, um, I don't always write it, but I finally got the idea for Calico Joe and everything fell into place. It was a lot of fun to write. It was a ton of fun to research, to go back and, and research the real, you know, the history of some of the baseball players. And, and um, it was, you know, it was a special book for me. But thank you. Yes, sir. The question is uh, about life imitating art. And the question is, um, I guess on this journey that we're taking as writers, have we run across issues or cases or stories or whatever that have made us write stories that change our lives or change our thinking about things? You guys want to hop in? I, I don't know about anything that, um, you know, changed my point of view. Uh, but certainly, you know, I think with all my books, I always take a, a kernel or a grain of a true story and get into it. And I think it gives me a, a lot more empathy for the people involved. And, and that involves the uh, people on both sides of the law and you see how things work. Uh, but I always, you know, I always try to choose a story that has some type of truth about it, some kind of, you know, uh, reality to it. But I don't know if it changes my point of view or if I, I just gravitate towards understanding those characters through my own prism. I'm not really sure. When I, uh, I mean, I was a lawyer for 10 years and I had a lot of clients who went to prison because uh, they deserve to go to prison, okay? I, I, I couldn't save them. Uh, I never had a client that I thought was um, wrongfully convicted. It was not a part of my world, practicing law in DeSoto County, Mississippi. Uh, and I missed the first wave of DNA exonerations in the mid-'90s. And when I finally saw this story about a guy who was my age and my race and my religion and my my background, and he, he was a first-round draft pick of the Oakland A's and 1973, when I was not drafted, by the way. I was waiting to be drafted. Um, but he was a great player, and he came within five days of being executed for a murder he did not commit. And I saw this story, and I thought, you know, that's that's a heck of a story. Well, I jumped into it. Um, you know, you talk about re- reporting, Ace. I, I, did, I was not a journalist. I didn't know how to dig for facts or write or report or investigate. I just loved the story. Um, but it really opened my eyes to wrongful convictions. And it made me realize that there are thousands of innocent people in prison. And uh, it's very hard to get them out. And while they are there, the real rapists and murderers often go free before they're caught again. And it, it, it really, I mean, it was a revelation to me. And I've spent uh, the last 11 years on the board of the Innocence Project in New York, helping found the Innocence Project here at Ole Miss, helping found the, uh, the Innocence Project at the University of Virginia, and speaking to innocence groups all over the country because I know that those innocent people are there. And, and, and our, our, our system, this is what's so frustrating to me still, is our criminal justice system, something that I really understand, and our penal system, something I really understand, because that's my background, it, it, it's, it's very broken in many areas. It's deeply flawed in many areas, and it could be fixed so easily if we would just do it and save a ton of money and a lot of human misery if we would just go do it. And so that's kind of my bandwagon these days. Uh, in, in, the, in, the, in the context of popular fiction, though, you can't, you, you know, you, you can't, uh, allow your politics to become too intrusive. You can't assume that your readers share your politics because they don't. 
And a little bit can go a long ways, but my wife will tell me, you know, after two or three books, she said, just get off your soapbox and um, stop preaching and go write something like Camino Island, just something for fun. Well, the great thing also with those stories of, as far as fiction is often we could find resolutions to those problems, those issues. I did. I took actually, I was helping out the Innocence Project here years ago, and I came across a case that I was just helped doing some interviews on and uh, never had any resolution to it. But uh, it was a guy that was on death row. And the murder victim's daughter, um, who had been 10 years old at the time, stepped forward five or six years later and said, the man who's on death row, I saw the men who abducted my, my mother, and that's not the man. And that story, that just kind of simple story, had stuck with me. And I ended up using it for one of the, the Spencer novels. Uh, and I was able to find a resolution to it. You know, I was able to, to work through it through fiction and actually have the, the good guys triumph and have somebody exonerated. But in real life, it's, it's much difficult, more, more difficult than that. And the, the legal channels are, I'm sure, extremely frustrating. Yes, sir. The question is about critics, and uh, and during the course of a very long question, I got misquoted at least twice. Um, <laughs> that's a pretty good quote. I like that quote. If I said that, uh, the, the question is, you know, how I feel about critics, or I guess how we all react to reviews, and um, I'd, I'd like to hear what you guys say. I, I have a simple answer, which is, you only believe the good ones. <laughs> Tom, you look at critics? I do. I, I look uh, way too closely, everywhere from Goodreads on up, and uh, I obsess. Once in a while, I'll try late at night to find that person and tell them how wrong they are. <laughs> That's not true. That's not true. That is not. <laughs> a couple of times I have done that. I haven't ever found anybody, which is, which is good. So what do you do when you publish your, your long-awaited novels and somebody trashes it? I mean, a, a legitimate critic. Get a drink, you know. Um, complain to Beth Ann. Uh, I'm happy it's reviewed, I suppose, at, at the same time. Well, I learned early on. Um, my first book was, um, was not reviewed, uh, except by my hometown newspaper in Memphis, Tennessee, a paper I grew up with, and they thoroughly trashed it. And it really, it really hurt. And then the firm came out. Uh, the next year, and most of the reviews were pretty good, but I would read five or six reviews of the firm and feel pretty good, and then re- read one bad review and want to go kill people. You know, you just, it just ruins your day. And the next year, Pelican Brief just got hammered, but, but I knew that was coming. And at some point, I just said, I'm not going to read these things. I'm just not going to read them. If they're good, fine. If, if I dodge a bullet with the New York Times, fine. If I get nailed by the Washington Post, that's okay, you know. And frankly, you know, when the books are selling like that, you just say, screw it. You know, I don't care. I'm lucky, I'm lucky, to, I'm lucky to be where I am. You know, occasionally somebody like one of my good friends will send me a horrible review just for fun, you know. Uh, <laughs> And it's still that's a true friend yeah, right there. But I mean, it'll still ruin my day. You know, I'll read something that somebody wrote in San Francisco and get all mad. But so I, I, I really do a good job of just ignoring it. Uh, it's, it's, it's too painful to, to, to mess with reviews. Yes, sir. Well, the, the question deals with uh, advice on, on writing that we sometimes are asked to give. And um, when I, when I wrote, was writing A Time to Kill, which took three years, I had no idea what I was doing. I didn't know if I was going to finish it. 
I had a career, you know, and a young family, and I would put it down for a week or two. And there are times when I didn't want to pick it up again. I just didn't want to, you know, I'd walk in a bookstore and see all the big books and think, you know, this is hopeless. Um, Until I learned the first, uh, I guess, piece of advice for young writers or, or any aspiring writer, if you're not writing a page a day, nothing's going to happen. And you write that page if you can, at the same time, place, wherever, early morning, late at night, lunch break. Sometimes it'll take you 10 minutes. It may take you an hour. But until you're doing a page a day, nothing's going to happen. And that's that's still, and I have four, five or six more little pearls of wisdom that come out in. You, you, have, a few, you have a few of them in the book, yeah. in uh, no prologues. I hate prologues. And, um, um, well, I, no, not all prologues, because I've used a couple of them before. Um, <laughs> The prologue I hate is the one where they uh, use it as a gimmick to hook you in. There's some really dramatic thing, a child in danger or a stalker or somebody in chapter one to get you sucked into the story, leave you hanging and go to chapter uh, chapter one, which has nothing to do with the prologue, and then to chapter two, which is unconnected to chapter one. And then finally around chapter three, after 30 pages, they slam you back to the prologue and you have no idea what you read. I mean, it's, it's, and it's, a, common, it's a common mistake. I say it's a rookie mistake. Um, it's also a rookie mistake to introduce a ton of characters in the first chapter. I mean, your readers are, are anxious to get going with you with a new book. Don't give them four generations of the same family. Well, you know, they just they have to pull out a flow chart to keep up with who's who. Uh, that's a, that's a common uh, rookie mistake. Uh, I'm on a roll here now, so I'll. I'll okay. <laughs> yeah, there's a, a good. It's a good little passage about writing. There was a. There was a Article in the Times recently, in which I think I believe somebody asked you these things, and you gave them eight. Yeah, the list. The list uh, one time had fourteen uh, things on. Now, now it's down to eight, because I keep breaking the rules myself. And when I break the rules myself, I don't. I take them off the list. Okay. <laughs> we have time for one more question. Yes, ma'am. What authors do we enjoy reading? I can start with that. Other than each other's books, <laughs> at, at present company accepted. What do we like to read? Go, Rich. I was going to say, John Grisham, Ace Atkins, Tom <laughs> Okay, we got that out of the way. In our favorite bookstore. Uh, yeah. I'll say, go. in October, a book called Heating and Cooling comes out by a writer called Beth Ann Fennelly. Uh-huh. And it's amazing. You are getting lucky tonight, Tom. <laughs> like book tour all over again. Heating and Cooling. Yeah, Heating okay. and Cooling. Ace, what are you reading? Yeah, I, I go back to a lot of uh, authors, um, that, that really meant a lot to me over the years. And I continually go back to one writer that you mentioned in, in the book is John D. McDonald. I just find him just endlessly fascinating. I go back and I learn everything, learn things from him each time I go back to those books. Uh, Elmore Leonard, another guy we just talked about earlier. Um, and, uh, you know, there's, there's just, there's so many great authors right now. The young authors are working. Um, Megan Abbott's one of my favorite. There's a great writer in North Carolina, a guy named David Joy, who I read. And so, uh, you know, there's just never a shortage on my bedside table of good stuff to read. And that's, that's the fun of it. And the, one of the reasons I like to live here in Oxford. Uh, Tom, um, are there writers when they publish a book, you're going to go buy it right then? Yes. Who? Cormac McCarthy, I do. Philip Roth, I do. Both of whom have quit writing. Have they really both? No, Roth for sure retired. Roth retired, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll answer my own question. And, and Stephen King, I, I buy every Stephen King book. I uh, there there are a handful of writers when they publish. I'm going to go buy the book right then. Uh, one is uh, Ian McEwan, I like Ian. John Le Carre, the British espionage guy. Um, 
used to be Pat Conroy, a uh, guy I loved, and it was a friend of mine. And I would, you know, Pat published, I would normally get an advanced copy, but I'd always go buy the book to help out the writer, you know, help out the bookstore. Uh, but, you know, there are a handful of, handful of people that I read all the time. Uh, John D. McDonald, the Travis McGee series. Uh, I just read a great book called, oh, David Grant. I meet David Grant next uh, week in, uh, in Washington, and his book, um, Killers of the Flower Moon, is a bestseller right now. This fascinating book, nonfiction. He also wrote The Lost City of Z, which is uh, just a great read. Um, anyway, a lot of great writers. We are out of time. Thank you, Ace, Tom. Thank you, Richard. Let me say one thing, if I could, uh, John. Um, part, part of I, John's doing this, you know, wherever he's going on this tour, and he's talking with writers. He's going to independent bookstores. And um, I just want to thank you for n- not just coming here and signing a bunch of books today, though that's very important, <laughs> but for the way you um, – include so many other people into uh, this this thing that is so valuable to so many of us as certainly as booksellers, but as readers um, and, and making it a little more interesting and uh, sharing the wealth, so to speak. And, uh, and thank Ace and Tom too for living here since 2001 and all the books that you've given to this community and the advice, great advice you've given to writers here. One of the things that John has done here, as you know, is sponsor the um, Visiting Writer series at the University of Mississippi, of which Tom, of whom Tom was one. And there have now been, it's been 30 years now, close to 25. Tom Pearson was the first uh, writer, I think it was 1993. And uh, then uh, Tom was 2000, right, Tom? 2001. 2001, yeah. Mark Richard was second. Yeah. Anyway, great series. So I just want to say thank you for that, and thank you for coming here today. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank Thank you. Thanks to my guests, uh, Ace Atkins and Tom Franklin, and to my dear friend Richard Holworth, owner of Square Books, and to the staff and the volunteers and all the great customers. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to listen and subscribe to other episodes of Book Tour with John Grisham. You can find these on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or anywhere you get your podcast. Thanks to the folks at Digital Media for their production work. And thanks to our sponsor, Audible.com. See you next week on the road with Book Tour.